when it comes to historical food, even food historians usually stick to the recent past. We may gawk at the Victorian age's love of celery, for example, or those massive, if historically slightly inaccurate, giant turkey legs at the local Renaissance fair. But when it comes to sitting down to a real meal, we barely look beyond cookbooks or food trends more than 100 years old. Try digging into recipes more than a few centuries back, and even some of your favorite dishes or cuisines will start to look a little strange. They may not even exist at all. Lobsters, for example, used to be prison food. Meat jelly was all the rage in Europe. And I'm not really sure I'm ready to dig into the apparent medieval love of eel pie. But in recent years, there has been a wave of dedicated food historians who have plumbed the even more distant past to try and discover the tastes and techniques of extremely old historical cooking, dishes that would have been served more than a thousand, even two thousand years ago. But the further back you go, particularly when it comes to European or Mediterranean cuisine, the harder it is to discover. Surviving cookbooks or recorded recipes are few and far between. And by the time you get to, say, well, the Roman Empire, well, you can't just open up the book of Roman's Joy of Cooking. Apart from one particularly famous cookbook, of course, Apicius's De Re Cocinaria, or On Cooking Things, Roman food historians have to use other ways of figuring out exactly how and what Romans ate. That's not to say there isn't evidence. The Romans, after all, were the Romans. Shipping things like olive oil, salt, even grain across the Mediterranean. And these kind of long-distance trade networks tend to leave a few tax receipts, if not the occasional shipwreck on the bottom of the sea. Then there are the things like surviving grain mills, detailed kitchen frescoes depicting favorite foods or meals. And, of course, there are entire archaeological sites, full of evidence about how Romans shopped and ate on a daily basis. Pompeii, for example, is a fantastic example of this. With the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in the first century, the city is preserved like a snapshot of Roman imperial time. What were people wearing? How did they work? And of course, what were they baking, cooking, and eating when the famous volcano blew its top? Today, we're going to look at how one woman is investigating Roman food culture, one historical recipe at a time. We'll even do a little Roman historical baking ourselves. This is The Feast After All, and I'm your host, Laura Carlson. My name is Farrell Monaco, and I am an experimental archaeologist who recreates Roman foods using the archaeological, written, and pictorial records lived and worked in Vancouver for many years in TV and film, actually. I was working um, in front and behind the camera. And then at some point I decided, you know what, I'm, I'm actually going to go back to my first love, which is archaeology. And so I began studying archaeology and got my degree. And I had, I had been reading about it for, you know, my, my entire adult life, pretty much. So I decided to throw caution to the wind and to ignore everybody else in my life who said, you can't go into archaeology. Are you mad? It's Everything's picked over. You'll not get any work. So I went into it head first. Absolutely loved it. 
So in recent years, one of my favorite projects that I worked on was at Monte Testaccio in Rome. It's a, a man-made hill that's located uh, in the Aventine or in the, the Quartiere of Testaccio in Rome. There has been a crew, a Spanish crew, that has been working there through the University of Barcelona for almost 30 years. And they've been excavating sections of this hill, once again, entirely composed of ceramics. So it's, they're called Dressel 20s. They are ceramic amphorae that were used to traffic olive oil around the Mediterranean from the primary producing source, which was the Betis River in Spain. This hill is not just a lump of, of potsherds. It's actually, it's a testament to Roman economy because these, these amphorae sherds have markers on them. They have tidally picti and stamps that can be used for relative dating purposes, or they can be used um, to, to, to find the source of the oil and the producer. My mind kept wandering and I was thinking about the oil itself. And I thought, well, I wonder how great this oil was. I mean, it's coming in at high volume. They were using it for food. They're using it to clean their skin. They're using it for their lamps to, to light their homes at night. So this is a theme that kept presenting itself um, when I was working at, um, on the Pompeii Food and Drink Project. Again, you're seeing ceramic food vessels or cooking pots that are being reused as burial urns for um, cremation remains. And I kept thinking about the food, the food, the food, the food that governs every single day of our lives that we depend on, that we eat both for pleasure and for sustenance. So in my own time, I started to dig deeper on looking at the food remains themselves, doing research into the archaeobotanical and the faunal remains, looking at you know the representation of that in the archaeological record, looking at the frescoes. I would love to know how, or maybe a little bit about your process, how you approach, I don't want to use the word recreating, but kind of realizing, I suppose, uh, some of these ancient recipes. And I'm just wondering how you go about approaching either a record of a dish or something that we would say is in the realm of a recipe and then going about making it either in your own home or making it kind of in the 21st century. Um, what what are the kinds of things that you, you take into account when approaching 2,000-year-old dish or even older? First of all, when I experiment and I recreate, I'm a traditionalist. Uh, I try to stay to the book as much as possible or stick to the ingredients and the, the archaeological remains. I want to experience every sensory aspect of it, from the back aches to, you know, my hands shaking from hand milling for hours, because I want to understand the labor process, the time that goes into it, in addition to the sounds, the smells, the flavors, because that tells me a whole lot about um, the Roman experience, about the flavor profiles, about the labor and the, the energy expenditure that goes into it. So Virgil wrote poems about food and it's a, a stunning poem that I still, I, I absolutely love it. I can read it at bedtime, like a bedtime story. It's the, the story of, of the plowman of Similis. Um, getting up in the morning, four o'clock or five in the morning, to start his day, to mill his grain, uh, to make flatbread, and then he makes moretum, which is this Roman cheese ball. It's like herbs and garlic and fresh cheese, or you know, that we some aged Virgil cheese that was hanging above his. But maybe he didn't. <laughs> okay. Oh yes, dear listener. You didn't think I was going to listen to a historical recipe that featured in a 1,000-year-old poem and not make it, did you? I thought not. So, 
one recent weekend, Mike and I, along with our trusty hound and our trusty mortarium, that is, our imitation Roman mortar and pestle, set out to recreate a Virgilian Roman breakfast. So this is called Similuses, who's the farmer, uh, aged goat cheese and garlic meringue, with uh, flatbreads. Okay. You are going to take two cups of flatbread. Oh, two cups of flatbread. I grant you, two cups may not exactly be a Roman measurement. In Virgil's words, this is how Similus got his flour for breakfast. At length, although, with difficulty, having got a light, he draws away and shields his light from drafts with partially encircling hand, and with a key the doors he opens of the part shut off to store his grain, which he surveys. On the earth a scanty heap of corn was spread, from this he for himself doth take as much as did his measure need to fill it up, which ran to close on twice eight pounds in weight. One of the first few passages in that poem that his grain cabinet is locked with a key. So that tells you right there how valuable grain was. And we, I mean, we know how valuable it was because the, the empire expanded in order to p- procure more land that was grain producing. You know, they bought for land on Sicily. They fought for North Africa. They took over Etruria and the grain producing areas in order to feed the capital, to feed Rome and to provide more grain uh, because there wasn't enough fertile or viable land on the Italian peninsula itself to feed the growing empire. So they had to keep acquiring more land. Three-fourths cup, tepid water. Very tepid. Excellent. In it goes. So now mix it and then uh, transfer to a cutting board for the kneading process. Spoon, ready? Wooden spoon, mixing. It's everything, just flour and water? Well, it's a flatbread. We often don't realize today is that many people didn't actually have the capacity to bake bread, particularly in their own homes. Um, I was just wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit more about like what the, the cooking or kind of baking availability would have been in a Roman household. From what I understand from the archaeological data, I mean, just from walking Pompeii or walking Ostia, for example, and looking at your average run of the mill insula, these small, tiny little one-room homes that the working class Roman would live in, is for the majority of time, they didn't have cooking facilities. They didn't have an an oven. They might have had a small cooking platform or a tiny little hearth, Um, but that doesn't mean that they they couldn't have made flatbread in the ashes. They could have, but it would have been a, a very primitive form of bread, very basic in order to get a bread that was a little bit more enjoyable or palatable, they would have to hit uh, a taberna in the area or their bakery. But from what you can see just from observation alone, you can see that in most of these small, average, everyday households, they did not have cooking facilities. So they were very much dependent on um, commercial food preparation and um, commercial food and beverage outlets. Speaking of fast food, Archaeologists have recently uncovered even more evidence that Pompeii was a snack food Eden. Only last week, archaeologists revealed that about 150 thermopolia, aka Roman snack bars, had been discovered in the city. And these are real grab-and-go type places, offering things like baked cheese, lentils, 
and my personal favorite takeout food, spiced wine. Despite what these menus might suggest to us today, these places were anything but your typical high-end wine bar, but more resembling something like a fast food burger joint. It was fast, it was cheap, for your average blue-collar Pompeii resident. These folks often wouldn't have had kitchens in their own homes, so these snack bars were an easy way to get an afternoon or evening quick meal. And snacks weren't the only grab-and-go type establishment. Dozens and dozens of bakeries selling fresh bread have also been discovered at Pompeii. Yeah, so the uh, the bakeries, which is my my prime area of research, is uh, the Roman bakeries and um, and the bread itself, the form and composition. Bakeries at Pompeii are so densely represented in the structure. The the distribution of them is there's there's almost one per hectare. It's it's incredible. It's it's basically like Seven Eleven for you or I, or or Starbucks. It's on every single corner. And you hit it every day. So if you look at the, uh, the current distribution of commercial bread bakeries at Pompeii, which exist in 49 hectares, which are the excavated hectares at Pompeii, um, the distribution of them and the, the concentration of them, rather, are, it's quite dense. There's about one per hectare. When you look at that, you, you can see uh, how dependent Pompeians would have been on these commercial bakeries for their daily bread. So. At Pompeii, for example, you have, you know, the common number that goes gets thrown around is about 31 commercial bakeries. I believe that there's a little bit more than that. But you would have some bakeries with mills and some bakeries without. Um, there was a tendency um, within the discipline for bread archaeologists or bakery archaeologists to call the bakeries without mills pastry shops, which was always troublesome to me because I don't understand why we would, we would assume that pastries were being made there and not bread. But if you had a bakery with four mills, for example, they would mill for themselves. They would mill for other bakeries. Then the sakari, the, the porters would carry grain and flour back and forth um, between the bakeries and and also uh, private supply between the homes and the bakeries as well, because the bakeries were also used as grain storage. It was almost like having a safe deposit box for your grain for some households, because grain was a valuable commodity. Grain was money uh, in so many cases. So this was something that was valued. Um, you could keep it under lock and key at a bakery and they would mill your grain for you and you could have them bake bread, which is why some uh, households had bread stamps. So they could say, I, you know, I need a X amount of loaves made today and the baker would stamp the family's bread stamp on it so that you knew that so-and-so had uh, an amount of loaves that were going to be picked up today and taken back to that home. So it was quite the racket. It really was. Wow. So I'm imagining being a professional baker in the Roman Empire was a pretty good job. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was. From from what I've read, the Collegium Pastorum, which was like the trade union for the bakers, it was very powerful. They had relationships with the state. Um, they had access to the grain. They were very much involved in politics. They some, you know, ran for office and some endorsed certain people who were running for office. The uh, elite members of society who ran for office would 
they would have their own grain doles or their own bread doles, for example, in order to win favor with their constituents. So I like to think that, you know, the, the collegium, the pastores or the bakers of the day were probably just as powerful as, as teamsters or people who were in office. And, and to me, the reason why I, I focus on this area is because you know, bread was the backbone or cereal grains um, were the backbone of the Roman diet. Bread was the primary vehicle for uh, getting those grain calories into the Roman people and the Pompeians in particular. So that to me became more important. And so I started to do experimental archaeology and I started to hand mill my own grains uh, with Charlotte Horton at Castella Potentino. And right now we're actually growing grain ourselves as well, because we want to go through that whole entire process together in order to understand the labor that's involved, because that that in, in turn also gives us an indication as to the value, um, the value that this food had and how much work it took to produce Soon it. Soon as toil of turning has fulfilled its normal end, he with his hand transfers the copious meal from there into a sieve and shakes it. On the grid, the refuse stays, the real corn refined doth sink, and by the holes is filtered. Then immediately he piles it on a board that's smooth, and pours upon it tepid water. Now he brought together flour and fluid intermixed. With hardened hand, he turns it o'er and o'er, like you're doing o'er and o'er. We should have started with the flattened board, question the historical accuracy of this bowl method. <laughs> Mr. Oh, I'm not going to mill my own flour. We have a flattened board. A I trust one. you, Similus. You're saying there's a similarity. Oh, that's so bad. That's kind of kind of a bowl. Okay, cool. Well, now you are going to shape it into a flat disc. On my flattened board. On your flattened board. How thick? As thick as you want, because we're going to cut it into squares. Well, we're going to sorry section it into fourths. Sorry, that's that's the one. Well, there's only there's only two forms of bread that have been found in the Bay of Naples area. There's the Panis Quadratus, which is the infamous round loaf of bread that we've, you know, we've seen in pictures and we've seen it in textbooks as children. It's the, the round loaf that is sectioned typically into eight wedges, sometimes four, sometimes six, but for the majority of the time, it's eight. Um, those are the loaves that were found um, at the bakery of Modestus inside of, locked inside of the oven. There was 81 of them that were excavated in 1862 by sure, yeah. Fiorelli. Um, it goes in for 15 minutes, she recommends. Okay. Are you ready for moretum? Yes, I have no pun ready for you. It is a cheese dish that the Romans made using everything, herbs, spices, Greenery. Okay, so basically what happens is Simulus decides that like his whole wheat dough is not going to be enough for breakfast, so he's going to make some kind of like cheesy cheese ball mixture, garlicky cheese ball mixture to go with it. I don't understand how he could think that what we just put in the oven, which looks pretty much like just flour, could not be enough for breakfast, but anyway. Okay, so basically apparently he has no meat on hand, so he's like, well, crap. So he has some cheese... They had quite the handle on cheese. Columella wrote some writings about it and, and tells us, you know, how to make a basic cheese or a ricotta or a cottage cheese, which is what, you know, we would call it nowadays. But Columella tells us how to separate the curd from the whey using milk, uh, sheep and goat milk. And he tells us- So what us we're going to need is uh, we're going to need the goat's cheese, 
really neat because this calls for a pound of aged goat's cheese. That's a lot of cheese. You read the poem on my site and you read about him walking out in his garden and choosing the ingredients that he's going to make his morning meratum with. So Similis ate this for breakfast with, with flatbread that he made in his hearth in the ashes using he's got tiles. herbs and then he goes out to his garden and he's like, well, I got stuff here. I can, I can make this work. I can do something with this. So basically that's exactly what you're going to do. You're going to make he this He gathered four heads of garlic, not cloves, four heads and mashed it together in his mortar with the herbs and everything. We're going to start with our morate, uh, our, our mortarium. There we go. And you are going to get out four bulbs, heads of fresh garlic. Yeah. But remember, we already have this conveniently sliced. Okay. Let me get the prepared garlic. Then we put in- With the cheese that he took off um, of the hook that was hanging over his hearth while his, his housekeeper made his flatbread with the grain that he milled. So when I, I made this the first time, I thought, oh God, I'm like, I, got, I have to put four, four heads of garlic into it. I'm not, I'm not cheating here. And my husband was with me and he said, you're not going to put four heads on it. I said, yeah, I'm going to do it. Of course I'm going to do it. I have to do it by the book. And so I put it in and made this beautiful um, meratum recipe, which is accessible on the site. And I used my husband as a guinea pig. I thought, this is the best part. Is I thought, okay, if, is anything weird going into this recipe, anything strange, you know, anything potentially dangerous, I'm going to get my husband to taste test it first. And he taste tested Similis's meratum with the four heads of garlic. And I mean, he's a bit picky, a little bit picky. He looked at me and he said, this is absolutely stunning. I said, are you serious? He said, taste it. And I said, okay. So I, I tasted it and it was powerful. I mean, it was, and it's, and it stayed with us for days, but it was good. It was really good. That's very tasty. I mean, it's very, you might be surprised when this garlicky, mm -hmm. but it's, it's good. Like that's a good kind of cheesy dip. Mm -hmm. Well, now you must form it into a ball. Oh, and our flatbreads are ready. So say the, um, sundae. Traditional Roman bread sleeve. Are they hard, the, the flatbreads? Are they done? Yeah. Ooh, the flatbread is still warm. Just like it just came from the giant wood oven in the backyard. Exactly. It's very good together. It is very good together. I, I mean, it's a good little like spread for these very rustic flatbreads, but like I'd put this on a cracker. Yeah, I feel like the flatbread's kind of just a way to like get bread to your mouth. Mm -hmm. But uh, the spread is quite good. I yeah. Would, I would make that again, I think. Yeah. I mean, really all it is is like cheese, garlic, and spices, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there's nothing super unusual in here except for maybe the roux, but I'm not sure really how much roux I'm tasting with the garlic, the salt, the olive oil. It's good. It's very good. Good cheese. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of things that I would not put together and eat this way in a modern era went into it. Mm -hmm. Some of the spice combinations and certainly the like, I guess you have garlic cheese, but I really like take garlic and smash it together with cheese. But I mean, garlic cheese bread is totally still a thing in the modern era. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like people people like that combination still. And yet it's it's very good. I, mean, I think it without the flatbread, it would be very garlic forward. Mm -hmm. And the garlic is astringent, just like uncooked garlic. Well... This is not going to surprise really anyone, but it, it is not dissimilar. In even modern pesto, there is like raw garlic. That's true. It's very similar to pesto. I mean, there's obviously no 
pine nuts, there's no basil, but that element of like the garlic, the oil, a little bit of vinegar mushed together, it, it is not 100% dissimilar. But when you speak to, I guess, let's say the differences between certain strains of garlic or the evolution of food products over time, we made the exact same recipe last summer at a retreat that I was teaching in Rome. And uh, one of the students made it, again, exactly, exactly to the word, but used a different variety of Italian garlic. And all of us were coughing and crying. It was hilarious. We were, we were, it was so strong. It was incredible. And I thought, my God, Similis would not have been able to plow his fields if he was bent over coughing the whole time. When we look at cheese in the Roman diet, and we look at, again, the various food, uh, the various meals that they prepared with cheese. It, again, it speaks to their, their ingenuity. It speaks to the sophistication of their culinary culture. It also speaks to the fact that they, you know, they had limited resources. They had nothing like what we have nowadays um, with, you know, in a global food culture with food being flown and driven all over the world. They used what they had, but they did incredibly creative things with it. Hippotrima, for example, another cheese recipe similar to Muratum, but it's sweet. So it's a dessert and it's something, again, you would, you would have to have scooped it up with something because it's made with soft cheese or mashed cheese, defrutum, grape syrup, dates, raisins, but then they would put garum in it, which to me was like, oh, dear Jesus, no. Salted fish sauce with fruit and cheese. To us, initially, you would think this is going to be absolutely vile. I cannot see how this is going to produce anything palatable. And then you taste it, and it is so incredibly beautiful. The flavor of this, this hippotrima that I made that, that Apicius outlined. Good ol' Apicius. That's the guy I was mentioning at the start of the episode. Probably the most famous of the Roman cookbook writers. Well, make that one of the only known cookbook writers. He was probably writing around the time of the first century AD. Basically, right around the same time as that eruption at Pompeii. Historians turn to Apicius quite a bit to figure out something about Roman recipes and food. And you know, he is a guy to trust. What with those classic flavor combinations of honey, cheese, and fish sauce. Well, who am I to judge? To the Romans, that might have been the equivalent of peanut butter and jelly. And yes, dear listener, Mike and I weren't about to skip out on some hippotrima just because of a little fish sauce. We were going to make that one, too. Apicius's hypotrima with defrutum glazed spelt biscuits. She recommends making the glazed spelt biscuits first because they need to bake, etc. Okay, so you are going to need... 650 grams of coarse ground spelt flour. We know okay. uh, from reading Pliny, Livy, and, and other writings that the Etruscans were, were brilliant agriculturalists. They had beautiful land, very fertile, and they were growing a lot of grains and lentils and beans and whatnot. So they were growing barley and they were growing emmer. So Charlotte and I... Um, started talking about this last year before I went out to do the terroir conference at Castello Portentino. Now, eagle-eared feast listeners will remember Charlotte Horton from our episode on, surprisingly enough, Etruscan food back in October of 2018. 
she and I had decided to do a test plant uh, because we want to go through the entire planting and harvesting process before actually baking a loaf. And uh, so we started initially, we did a test plant last late fall of barley and grano tenero. So again, standard bread, re- bread wheat or, or triticum estivum wasn't actually in use until a little bit later on. We decided to plant some, some basic bread wheat along with barley in order to work with both of them. Uh, and then we're also going to plant some farro in the next month or so as well uh, so that we can have it ready for harvest. And we are going to do this using our own labor, which I honestly hope there's a chiropractor nearby because I don't, I don't know what's going to happen to us, but we are going to harvest with the scythe. We are going to uh, win of grain ourselves. We are going to dehusk it. Um, We'll mill it by hand. Okay, so Mike and I weren't about to mill anything by hand, but the spelt flour Farrell calls for in her hypotrema recipe, well, there is a link there to the wheat she's growing with Charlotte in Italy. Huh, so they think spelt appeared before the um, appearance of common wheat. Spelt in the Greek ancient Greek world was a gift to the Greeks from the goddess Demeter. Earliest archaeological evidence of spelt is from the 5th millennium BC on the northeast portion of the Black Sea. Grain actually just refers to emmer wheat or also potentially includes spelt. I see. Likewise, references to emmer in Greek and Latin texts are traditionally translated as spelt, even though spelt was not common in the classical world until very late in its history. Okay, that's probably enough about spelt. Besides, spell was just for the biscuits that we were making to go with the real Roman recipe, which was the hypotrema. You know, the honey, cheese, and fish sauce combination. Well, that plus a few special herbs and spices all blended together in that beautiful Roman mortarium. I'll admit, Mike and I were a bit dubious about how this would all turn out. I mean, Farrell's recipe that she had posted online looked beautiful in the photos. But fish sauce? So Honey? Really? And mix everything together. Um, add the cheese in last. If you're using a mortar, pulverize each dry ingredient individually using your pestle, then transfer it in, into the large mixing bowl to be mixed together once all of the ingredients have been mulched. Add the cheese in last, either a soft cheese or smashed. Mix it evenly. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. This is going to be like a little bit of a fun scavenger hunt because there's some random stuff that goes on in here. Talk to me about hypotrema, will I? So hypotrema apparently means something ground up into paste into a in a mortarium. Um, at first glance, we will notice that this is something the Romans liked to do a lot because it was easy. But apparently hypotrema in a picius requires the following ingredients, which is pepper, lavash, or lovage, Dry mint, pine nuts, raisins, dates, sweet cheese, honey, vinegar, liquamen, or garum, oil, wine, defrutum, or caroenum, which the defrutum is our pomegranate molasses in this case, but also could have been made from grapes, so like a grape molasses. Think of it as a Roman cheese ball. Okay. That you eat with crackers. Okay. Yeah, we've got cheese. Okay, okay. Stuff. Well, then we are pretty much ready to go on that, except for forming it into a decorative shape. 
Now we're gonna garnish this at the end with a little bit of dried roux. Now let's ignore what it tasted like for a minute because to be honest, it tasted great. But let's just say our version of Hippotrema didn't exactly look like Farrell's fantastic photo. It occurs to me that we may have incidentally made the classical Roman version of Nailed It here. Because <laughs> if you saw her beautiful cheese ball. Does it not look like this? It's probably close. Well, what? So really, I'm just looking forward to the uh, ability to say Nailed, Nailed It. it. Which I'm trying to think of what the... Uh, the Roman for the, nailed it? You mean the Latin? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. You know, I I hate that I'm going to do this, but I might like Google Translate this. Because I just... That, weirdly enough, that didn't come up when I was teaching Latin. I feel like it'll get you close enough and then you can adjust. All right, it really doesn't translate that well. What it actually has been translated to is... It fixed that to the cross. <laughs> which is... To all the Latinists out there, I am so, so very sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there might be a better translation. Like, yes, clearly. Come on, how can? What's not to like about this? Uh, It looks great. You, you did, you did a great job. You did a great job. Shall we try it? Let's eat it. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a traditional Mm -hmm. Roman knife. Get a nice, healthy portion there. Chewy. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's like it, it has like a very kind of like 1970s cheese ball taste to me. Like I, I'm given the, the interesting things that went into this, it doesn't really have an unusual taste to me that if you presented this to me at a- Potluck? At a potluck, a, a cocktails and canapes. If you presented this to me like as a, as a cheese dip at a party, I'd be like, well, this is a cheese dip. Like this is, a, a spread that one puts on a cracker, and and it's fine. There's pine nuts in here. There's raisins. There's dates. There's there's fish sauce. There's fish sauce. I mean, I feel like if anything, I can taste the vinegar. Ricotta also has a bit of a tang to it, anyways. Mm-hmm. It's wild that they don't taste more unusual given what's in them. Yeah, given that there's basically nothing that you would recognize as like, oh, obviously you're gonna make a biscuit this way, or mm-hmm. those are definitely flavors you should put in your cheese ball. I'm amazed at how normal the biscuits, normal, as in they are not a completely bizarre taste and texture. The way that all of those ingredients fit together, and then in particularly with Lovage, the Lovage took the spotlight in this. And nowadays we could use fresh Lovage if we're growing it, or we can use um, bishop's weed or celery seed as a replacement. That hint of it in the background underneath the sweetness of the dates, the freshness of the mint, the warmth and the cream of the cheese knocked my socks off. I couldn't believe it. And I thought it brought the sophistication of Roman flavor profiles to a whole new level for me. And I thought, yeah, I mean, these guys were ahead of their time. Their their cooking was incredible. And for them to understand um, that you could mix salty fish sauce with dates and cheese and produce something that was so incredibly pleasant that you just, you know, sit there, shoes off, eating the whole thing in silence. It is incredible to me. It's incredible. You know, it really is. 
Mike and I may not have made the prettiest ancient Roman cheese ball in the world, but Farrell was right. It was pretty darn tasty and 100% unexpected. It's not every day you get to dine like a first-century Roman. Now, if you're looking for Similis's breakfast recipe or Apicius's hypotrema, you can find all these, as well as tons of beautiful photos, way better than ours, and lots of history on Farrell's website at tavolamediterranea.com. For 2019, actually, so the last month I uh, launched my, uh, my touring public education program. It's called the Old School Kitchen. And uh, so it's basically, it's um, workshops and lectures that are being mounted through the museums uh, here in the United States. Um, and then I have uh, summer workshops and retreats in Italy. It's actually, there's a, a couple of Australian high schools that have signed on and they're coming over with school trips. So I'll be taking them um, through the bakeries and then teaching them how to make Roman bread. This summer, um, I'm working with Charlotte Horton at Castello di Potentino, um, as well as a friend of mine, Sagar Setere, who is an Iranian food photographer and food stylist who lives in Rome. Her and I are mounting a retreat at the Castello uh, in uh, Tuscany, and then Charlotte and I are mounting a weekend retreat um, that is focused on Etruscan food archaeology, which we know is it's, it's very difficult to delve into because it's much less extensive than Roman food archaeology, but that challenge is what is exciting. And looking at uh, what food remains there are, looking at um, the archaeology that's out in the bushes, even surrounding the Castello, um, the wine stones, the, the mill, the mill quarries um, that are around there. It speaks volumes about the, the food history in Italy pre-Roman, which is, is fascinating to me. And if you're interested in joining Farrell on her Roman culinary adventures, or you've been looking for an excuse to visit Charlotte Horton's beautiful Etruscan castle, featured recently in the New York Times, FYI, well, you're in luck. This summer, they're running several workshops in Tuscany, to continue their investigations on ancient grains, cuisine, and basically eating well in the Italian countryside. Well, if anyone wants to join, they can. We have a few spaces left for the week-long retreat, which is um, it's called the Old School Kitchen, from the Etruscan table to the Roman banquet. Um, and then the, the weekend short Etruscan feast is called um, Etruria. So they can join us for either and you can find the details on my site at tavolamediterranea.com. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson, with mixing by Mike Port. Obviously a huge thank you this week to Farrell Monaco of tavolamediterranea.com. We had so much fun making her delicious and unexpected Roman recipes. I also could have talked to her for about four more hours about Roman bread stamps. Just saying. And if you'd like to see our very humble versions of her recipes, don't forget to visit our website at thefeastpodcast.org. We'll also post some pictures on our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at feast underscore podcast. And as always, if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks again, and we'll have another great meal that made history for you next week. 
I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. And remember, at Vigenzi Ludkrusi, nailed it. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.